Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, Welcome. Uh, Those that are new, uh, my name is Manny. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and we uh, go through um, Scripture just uh, chapter by chapter. Right now, we're in Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14. Um, We also rotate teachers, so you're probably not going to see the same teacher maybe a few times like in a row, uh, but we rotate out. Um, And good morning to those online. We're glad you could attend and be a part of this. And um, hey, it was, it was on my heart this morning. Before we jump into Genesis, um, totally unrelated, um, I wanted to read a passage um, from Matthew 11 um, from the words of Jesus just to encourage us uh, before we start, okay? So I'm going to read these, uh, are these words um, that come straight from um, Christ, which I believe will encourage us all and really set the tone uh, for this morning. And it says, at the time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is the sweet part. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning um, for our children's ministry in the back, um, for all of us coming in today, either, you know, arriving in chaos or uncertainty or heart of heart, Lord, or just uneasiness, anxiousness, that we can come to you, Father. We could come to you with a childlike spirit and heart. Lord, we we just praise you this morning. We pray that we could come and just worship you and know you more. Uh, Transform us through your truth and your word, Lord. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Hey, well, again, thank you for being here. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis uh, chapter 14. If you need a Bible, there are some in the racks or probably on the, underneath the chairs or there's a few on the shelves, but uh, we'll be in uh, Genesis 14. Um, and just to kind of recap a little bit, um, in 13, um, Abraham or Abram at this point and Lot, who his, is his nephew, had a needed separation for the time being. Uh, where, uh, you know, Abraham was kind of wandering and following God, and and Lot was um, basically um, doing what he felt like he should be doing, and and Abraham addresses that he needs um, to be about God's business, where Lot is distracted by the things of this world. Um, And there's some things that we can infer about who Lot was. Um, And if you look at 13, uh, chapter 13, excuse me, verse 12, um, it says that Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wickem, wicked, uh, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. All right, so this is, again, one of God's promises to Abram based on his faithfulness. What's happening to Lot is he is actually trusting in his own righteousness. Um, he is um, associating himself with 
Sodom, which is a wicked and evil place. Um, and it, it seems, uh, what Brian was talking about last week, uh, was that Lot was somehow separating his business and personal life from the spiritual life. Um, and we get caught in that as well sometimes, that we separate um, these two lives, and that's just, it's really not possible, um, but we sometimes pretend that it can be. And we're about to see a little bit more of the trouble that Lot gets in um, as we read through um, chapter 14. And if you look, I mean, the, the title of your uh, chapter 14 probably says, Abram Rescues Lot, um, or something like that. Um, and so that's what we'll be um, tar- talking about. And so let's read the first half of um, chapter 14, 1 through 16. Um, I'm going to go a little slow. Um, this reading kind of reads like a mythical tale, like Lord of the Rings um, or something like that. And so it's, um, we're going to work on our enunciation a little bit. All right. Um, chapter 14 says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Ketalamir, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabar, king of Zabalim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketalamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketalamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Eshtar Kurnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavev, Kerithiam. Dude, if I went to seminary and knew these words were so hard, I probably wouldn't have graduated. But um, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavev, Kerithiam, were in verse 6, and the Horites in their hill, country of Seir, as far as the El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mithphat and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zobian, and the king of Bela went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with <laughs> Kedalamar, uh, king of Elam, Tidal king of Goyim, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Ariot king of Elisar, four kings against five. Okay. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of so- Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, in his possessions and went in their sorry and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Memre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Anar. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard of his kinsmen had or sorry that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, uh, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and, sorry, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, and the women, and his, and the people. 
All right, we're going to stop there for a second. All right, I need a break. Um, but so what's happening, okay, is there are, uh, in this day of age, the, the landscape looks a little bit different. Um, later on, we're going to have these nations that are ran by kings. Uh, what's happening, there's kind of like these pirate kings. If you think of something like Mad Max or something like that, like it's just very territorial. It's very mobster or gangster-like um, in different districts where there are these different kings running these small territories. And basically what they're doing is they're running alliances with each other to plunder and to take over things and to tax people, um, or sorry, other cities. And what's happening, there's five kings that basically have been, for t 11 years, have been reporting to Ketelamar and his gang of kings to pay them taxes. And they said, we're not going to do this anymore because they were being taken advantage of. So this is what this is all about, is that they are saying, no, we're going to set out these five kings or small territories are going to go after these four so they can get their rights back, okay? If you read through all this, um, it doesn't go really well for those five kings, which tells you something because you would think five against four uh, would be an advantage. Uh, but they, they weren't really smart. They, you, know, you see that thing of... Um, some of them, you know, even were fighting in their own land, but were falling into their own pits. These the bitumen pits. Yours might say asphalt or tar pits. Um, they they just weren't thinking clearly, um, and so it became chaotic. Now, the whole point of this is to just show that they continue to live in a very depraved, awful place. All right, they live in a, a place that um, you know is always going to be full of sin. Um, and it continues to become a problem. And then uh, Abraham gets to be involved. Uh, but I want to point back to something that, um, that I think God is, is trying to really draw out, is uh, we continue to see the problems of Lot's self-righteousness um, and his decision-making, um, kind of making decisions based on sight instead of faith. Okay, He makes decisions based on sight, the things that look good to him, the things that appeal to him, um, instead of walking in faith. And we have the opposite of what's happening with Abraham, okay? Um, now, it's, it, you notice at the end of chapter 13, it says that um, Lot is near Sodom. He, he pitches his tent um, and sets up camp um, outside of the walls. But all of a sudden, over this time between when Abraham and Lot um, separate, he somehow is dwelling in um, Sodom, and where does that say that? Um, oh, yeah, verse 12, it says that, that Lot was captured and he was dwelling among the Sodomites um, and everyone else. And so um, he is, again, failing to see um, his own problems uh, becoming an issue. And this, this comes from uh, Scripture um, all over, but he, at the end of the day, Lot wanted to be a friend with the world, okay? Lot wanted to be a friend with the world and not, and not walk in faith with God. James 4.4 4 says this. It says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be friends with the world makes himself an enemy of him, um, and meaning God. And, and so, again, there's these warnings that we, can, we see all the time. And this can be hard for us, though, 
Um, because really, Lot wanted to, to feel like he, he belonged, right? That he, he belonged to, to the world, and, and it can be appealing. And so for us as followers of Christ, it, it is challenging because we feel, or we don't just feel, we sometimes are out of place, right? When you walk in righteousness, when we decide to walk in faith, okay? And it's only going to become more intense. I think that we are starting to see um, in today's age where um, making decisions based on faith in true righteousness of what God desires compared to what the world wants us to find, it, it's going to become even, we're going to become even more separated. It's going to become even more chaotic. And that's going to be, that's going to be awkward for us. That's going to be challenging. Um, and if it's happening, I mean, we're talking you know, thousands of years ago, and it's happening today, like God continues to understand, you know, that, that we have a need to walk in righteousness. And, and we'll notice um, a, a great contrast of what's happening with, with Abraham's reaction in a second um, as we, we jump into 17 uh, through 24 here in a second. But um, again, we have to be careful. When we, when we make decisions based on sight, we're inviting, you know, this friendship with the world. And that's not God's desire for us. We can learn a lot from Lot in that. All right, let's get our eyes on uh, verse 17. This is where it gets fun, okay? So all, all these things happen. Abraham hears about this. He has these allies. Um, and, you know, it, there, enough time has passed from when Abraham um, and Lot separate that Abraham is able to create a community um, you know, he, he's able to have an army of 318 people, which you could imagine is, is pretty small compared to, to five, or sorry, four, you know, tribes or, or you know, different cities in these pirate kings. Um, and so God continues to be faithful to what Abraham is doing. And we'll, we'll continue to see that on. But I think that if we correlate that promise at the end of chapter 13 where God, you know, gives them this vision of saying, you see everything out here, as far as the east is from the west, um, this, I'm going to give you this inheritance. Like Abraham is continuing to be faithful to that promise, to that, that covenant that God um, had left before him. So in verse 17, it says, after his return from the defeat of Ketelimer, <laughs> I probably said that name differently six different times. So, okay, so uh, after his defeat of that king, that was within the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveth, and the king, or sorry, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High, and he blessed him. He said, "Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand." And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. 
Okay, so we're going to come back to Melchizedek because that's a, that's a big deal. Um, but um, wanted again, just we're talking about Lot and his decisions based on self-righteousness, based on um, him taking care of his own um, ways. Uh, Abram, you know, is just the opposite, okay, in what it looks like to walk in righteousness compared to the world. Um, and so what's happening, you'll notice in 24, um, sorry, 22 through 24, is, is he is saying, hey, I am not going to be about this world. I'm going to be about what God is doing. Uh, Warren Wearsby, who's a, a well-known uh, preacher, um, describes it this way. It says, when Abraham rejected Bera, which is the king of Sodom, um, and accepted Melchizedek's offering, he was making a statement, and he said, you can take the world, but give me Christ, okay? But give me Christ. And he's, and he's pointing to that, and we'll, we'll be able to correlate it here in a second, but that he's saying, you can have the world, because that is not what God has for me and for his actually f- future family, which is us, the church. And he sees that promise. Um, and so from Colossians 3, 5 through 6, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, covetousness excuse me, which is idolatry. When it comes down to this, it's, it's about who is it that we are worshiping. The world has idols and those that walk with Christ live in righteousness to the one true God, okay, the God most high, El Elohim, and that we'll be sharing that too. But um, someone open up the, your Bibles to 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and someone else um, to 2 Peter three ten through 11. And read it out loud, sorry. So do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, again, Abraham is seeing God's promises like unravel, and, or sorry, not unravel, but come out in this way. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, Lot is living in the pride of life. Second um, Peter uh, 3.10. Who's there? And I should have mentioned that verse 9 um, sets that up in, in Second Peter. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay, so the world is getting exposed. It's already getting exposed through this, you know, tragic story. 
Okay, Lot gets captured, um, and there's something amazing with that in a second. But then, and it says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, in lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 12 says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will, me- will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, this, these are hopeful passages for us, for those that walk in obedience, those that walk um, with the Lord in righteousness, like Abraham is doing. Because he, he, knew, he knew that God had a promise for him. And we, we can do the same. But again, it's awkward, right? Sometimes it is tough to, to walk in faith in this world. And that's why we come together. That's why we learn more about who God is. That's why we pray with one another. That's why we encourage one another with things of righteousness instead of things of this world. And unfortunately, it, it seeps into all our lives, okay? Now, this, this will be the fun part. If you go back to um, the beginning of verse 17, he runs into this, this person, Melchizedek. Now, people are have been asking this, and um, who is Melchizedek? And it's, it, can, it can be confusing, um, but it's, it's really, it really isn't that confusing, thankfully, because of the New Testament scriptures that share who Melchizedek is. Um, and so we'll be going to those um, here in a second. But uh, Melchizedek um, shows up, so that we're on verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Okay, so Melchizedek uh, means king of righteousness. Okay, if you, if you split those two words. He's also the king of Salem, um, or most would say that it's actually after Jerusalem in Canaan. Um, and Salem it means shalom, so the king of peace. Um, and he is not only a king of a nation um, or a tribe, he's also a priest, a priest of the God Most High. Now, we sometimes misinterpret when we read about, um, you know, good guys versus bad guys in the Bible. Um, the good guys um, follow a one true God, and the bad guys, they follow many gods, Okay. Well, it's, it's shown and proven over time that um, culture then was actually still pretty monotheistic instead of polytheistic, meaning one God um, compared to multiple gods. Um, and, and what's happening is, is that Melchizedek is someone else that follows the one true God, El Elohim. Okay, that's the, one, the God most high. Um, and Abram understood that when he, when he had this encounter with him, um, that he was, um, excuse me, when he was blessing him. Now, notice the, the attitude between the two kings. You have Melchizedek, who says, I want to bless you, and then you have um, King Bera, um, or King of Sodom. Um, he is saying, give me, right? I'm going to take. I want to take this from you. And there are two different paths. One is 
I want to bless you. I want to I live in righteousness. And Bera is saying, hey, give to me. And why, why do you think uh, Bera is actually asking Abraham for, for all those possessions? Or sorry, for all those people. Yeah, he's greedy. He was also worried about his reputation, right? That he, he, was, uh, he was greedy, but he was greedy for the reputation um, to say, hey, Abram, how about, you know, you, you take all the possessions and I get all the glory and I get all the fame that, I, that we rescued these people. And Abram, you know, gives him the what for, saying, I'm not going to take anything of yours because I don't want you to take anything that actually where credit belongs to God. Remember, he, and he, thankfully, in this account, at least in the order in which he receives that, he receives a blessing from, from Melchizedek first, which probably helps him be reminded, like, you know, I'm not going to live for these things, you know. And, and for us, we can be reminded that, hey, we need to be reminded all the time that we're not going to live for the world. We're not going to be friends of the world. Right? We're not going to be living after that. Now, you'll notice, um, again, Melchizedek is two things here. He is a king, and he rules a nation, and he is also a priest. What does a priest do? Anyone? A spiritual leader. Okay. Yeah, he, represents uh, between God and, and people, right? When we think about us, we all, um, we all minister and we are, are priests to something that is not seen, but we definitely feel. And uh, like he is a priest that um, represents God for his people um, and ministers uh, to them and has been ministering. And this is actually the first account where someone is, is ministering on behalf of, of God, the one true God. Um, and so let's go to um, Psalms 110, and we'll see how this plays out. Psalms 110, that's like in the middle of your Bible. And we're actually going to read the, the whole thing, the whole section. I'll read it. Slow? Yeah, I'll read it slow, of course. Go ahead and get there. Uh, Psalm 110. And this is a psalm from David. And David is a king, right? But he, is, he writes out this prayer. And it, and it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, and this is pretty awesome, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, and he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way, therefore he will lift up 
his head. All right, so this psalm is talking about, first, the first part is talking about Christ's kingship and then him as a priest, okay? And, and the line with that, and that's, that's one time where Melchizedek is talked about, and then we can flip over to Hebrews 7. And this one is pretty significant um, in the sense that the author of Hebrews is, is writing to who? He's, he's writing, like we get to read it, but he, he is addressing Jews, okay? He's addressing the Jewish community that have an idea of who Melchizedek is, if, you know, as they grew up in that culture and they were growing up uh, reading through the Pentateuch. Um, and so we're going to look at, we're going to read one through the end of this because I think it will give um, us some understanding Chapter 7, verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning um, of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so um, usually when we read through any part of the Old Testament, there's these fun things where we read, um, we have this guy who's the son of this guy, and we have this son who's the son of this guy that actually was mentioned a while back, and, and continue to go on through this genealogy. This doesn't happen for Melchizedek, right? He does not have a uh, birth genealogy in the same format that some of the fathers did. Verse 4 says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Now, um, it's talking about this, and, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have commendation, sorry, commandment in the law to take their tithes from the people, that is, from the brothers. Though These also are descended from Abraham. Okay, um, So we have, uh, later on, we find out that um, God does establish uh, a priesthood, okay, through, through the line of Levi, which is Aaron, who is a priest, okay? Um, well, again, he is not connected to that priesthood at all. So he's just addressing that. But what's supposed to happen in the Old Testament times, if you were a Jew, you would give your tithe to the priests, right? And that you would give your tenth of, of that to them. And so, again, talking about how this was obedience. You notice at, in Genesis uh, 14, when after Abraham is blessed, what does he do? He tithes to Melchizedek. But it wasn't to give alms to him personally, saying, well, thank you so much for the blessing. I'm going to pay you off. It was in you know, obedience, saying, okay, I'm, I'm giving this over to the, the one true God. Okay? So... But this uh, man, actually, um, excuse me, we'll just go back to four real quick. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are this descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, 
who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one whom it is testified that he, he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Okay. Now it gets even more exciting. So again, just tying back to, to the priesthood and that Abraham was, was walking um, in line with that. But then um, in verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather than one named after the order of Aaron, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah in the connection with the tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement okay, uh, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, that's from Psalm 110.4 that David is talking about. So David at that point is prophesying Jesus to come and be the one true priest and king. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, but on this hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. What is that better hope? It's Christ, right? Christ coming to save the world. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Okay, forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor, guarantor excuse me, of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues, again, forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utter, uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them, for us. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Okay, this is talking about when Jesus died for us on the cross. He offered himself forever. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has made perfect again forever. And so um, some would argue from Genesis about Melchizedek, um, there's a few different confusions that are going on. Some would say that um, Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate um, type Christ that came and just disappeared. So, like, he really didn't have a livelihood. Well, that, there are records that, that show that, you know, 
that probably was not true because there was a king over a, a place called Salem. Um, they just didn't really address it in, in the Bible. And then also there's another one um, that says, well, maybe he's just a type of Christ. Like he existed, but it was, it was kind of just um, kind of correlating and making a parallel. There are parallels, but again, Melchizedek was a true human being that showed up, blessed him, and was a priest um, and a king uh, representing God the Most High. Okay? Um, and on top of that, when David is reading that psalm, you know, you notice that last part that he would um, be at the brook and have understanding. That was David realizing that Jesus can, ha- has compassion for us, actually has um, empathy for us in understanding. Um, if you read earlier in Hebrews 4, um, it talks about a great high priest, right? And so since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. So the author of Hebrews, again, is making this connection for, for these um, Jews because he's reminding them of God's promises again. Because they were confused. They were trying to get back into the world, trying to be friends of the world. But for us, we need to be reminded of, hey, God's promise lasts forever. And that promise is that he sent his son, Jesus, for us to to really, you know, surrender ourselves to him, just like Abraham is doing there, receiving that blessing. Then in uh, verse 16 of Hebrews 4, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. What is happening in Genesis 14 is that God has continued to show his grace. And what what is kind of hilarious, if you notice, Lot, even in his own self-righteousness, in his own decisions of kind of going after his, his own faith by sight instead of, um, you know, faith in the things unseen, God still rescues him, right? Through who? Abram. Abram could have actually ignored it, kind of said, hey, I don't really want to be about that. Uh, but he knew of God's promise, and he knew that Lot played a significant part in that. And we will find out later how that all unfolds um, later on in Genesis. But again, that Abram is listening to God's promises and not being um, pulled back and forth between living by sight, but living in faith of the things that are unseen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. But we, again, notice that Melchizedek represents what Christ is to us, right? And so um, you'll notice that he arrives with bread and wine, um, which is, is symbolism. You know, what, is, what does the bread and wine represent? Yeah, Christ's body and his blood on the cross. Um, and so for us today, what we're going to do, um, it's going to be a little bit different. If you're new, you, w- you wouldn't know anything um, different, but we actually, we respond in worship, 
Um, and then we also have a response time where we take communion, um, usually separately at the cross, um, or you know, give joyfully and, and pray for one another, which we'll do all those things. But we're, what we're actually going to do, um, instead of um, taking communion separately, what I'm going to actually invite us to do is uh, they're going to play one song, and during that song, we're all going to grab communion and come back to our seats, and then we're going to take it together um, in remembrance of what Christ has done for us um, through him you know, dying for our sins. For us saying, you know, I trust that he, is ta- he has taken my burden. That I can come to him because he is gracious. And that we see his promises become fulfilled through his son Jesus. And that's why Melchizedek has importance for us. And so what we're going to do, we're going to uh, all stand in a response in worship. Um, also grab communion. Um, you know, we have the cup of juice and the bread in the crosses over here. If you're new and you call your, uh, say that you are a Christian, uh, we would invite you to come join us with that. And, but we all hold off and we'll take it together. Um, and so let me pray for us as we're reminded of what Christ did. Jesus, we thank you for this story of Abram and um, him rescuing Lot, but the encounter he had with Melchizedek and being reminded of, of your promise, Father, being reminded of the significance of um, your eternal plan, Lord. Lord, I pray for all of us as we, um, we wrestle with wanting to be friends of this world, um, but walking in your righteousness, God. And I pray that you'd be... Um, Continue to remind us of your kindness and your mercies that are new every day when we do that. Lord, we pray um, that we would not be enticed um, by the things that the world puts before us, but that we would, again, seek true righteousness um, in you. And it's because of what your son did that we can do that, and we thank you for that, Father. We praise you and we praise, we worship that we would have a sweet encounter with you, Father. Praise in your name. Amen. In the night that Jesus was portrayed, um, they were eating, and he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, and he said, Take this, it is my body. Take in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and he gave thanks to them. And they all drank and he said this, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Drink this in remembrance of me. As we continue to worship, um, we will have people um, on both sides that are willing to be praying with you. Um, You can also respond and worship through joyful giving. But as we remember what Christ has done for us, I would just encourage you to ask him to examine your heart. 
Say, God, what is it that I need to surrender to you? What are my fears, my worries, my sins that I need to bring to you in repentance? Let's continue to worship.